As you write your life story, you're far from finished. Are you looking to close the book on your job? Maybe turn a page in your career. Be Continued at the Georgetown University School of Continuing Studies. Our professional master's degrees and certificates are designed to meet you where you are and take you where you want to go. At Georgetown SCS, the learning never stops, and neither do you. Write your next chapter. Be continued at scs.georgetown.edu slash podcast. Check, check. Hello. We spent a lot of time talking about gain. At, is it serious? So wh- wh- whenever I, whenever I uh, uh, think about the patient actors, my Seinfeld voice comes out and I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> Don't even get me started on that. Yeah. <laughs> Hi, everybody, and welcome to our show, Is It Serious?, a conversational podcast where we share our doctor knowledge without all the complex doctor talk. I'm Dr. Mark Lewis, and I'm a medical oncologist based in Salt Lake City, where I treat cancers of the gut. I'm also a patient myself, living with a hereditary tumor syndrome. So I think about healthcare from both sides of the exam table. And I'm Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune. My friends call me JL, and I'm an internal medicine physician based in New York City, where I practice addiction medicine at my company, Suntra Modern Recovery. In addition to being a physician, I'm also a healthcare entrepreneur and investor, and I'm passionate about making our healthcare system better for everyone. Before we get started today, we want to recommend a counterpart to our show, the Dabble Co. podcast. It's also part of the Offscript Network. The host is nurse practitioner Claire O'Brien, and along with other professional women in healthcare, she talks about what's trending and what's actually the truth. Claire also does a very thorough and emotional series of episodes about the potential overturning of Roe v. Wade. It represents various aspects of the conversation and is definitely worth checking out. So for a responsible podcast about health, beauty, and wellness, check out the Dabbleco podcast right here on the Offscript Network. You can find the link in our show notes. Well, JL, how are you? Are you are you stressed? Because if so, we're about to get mellow, man. Yeah, well, you know me. I'm pretty naturally mellow, dude, and I'm sort of feeling <laughs> real chill today. But you got me intrigued, dude. <laughs> That's right, bro. So our question is: How has marijuana affected your practice? I'll start by saying that one of the most common questions I'm asked as an oncologist, beyond the obvious, you know, doc, what's my stage? How long am I going to live? Is can I be treated naturally? Now, my response is almost always be careful what you wished for. There are some very nasty drugs that come straight from the forest and the ocean. There's a, there's a chemo drug that we use in breast cancer it actually comes from sea sponges and it is not a pleasant chemical. But you know, what about plants? I actually mentioned in an earlier episode, this is close to my heart, the chemo that killed my dad actually came directly from tree bark. You know, there's some other plants that have entered cancer in, in medicine at large, but the one that we're going to talk about today is cannabis. And I'm going to get real technical right off the top with sort of the scientific name for this. So cannabis sativa and indica. And I'm going to uh, make a TV reference. You and I have talked about Seinfeld before, Jay. I'm going to bring mm-hmm. it into into this century <laughs> okay. with, with The Office. So one of my favorite shows and one of my favorite episodes of the whole series is called Drug Testing. So the way this goes down is uh, Dwight uh, is a volunteer sheriff 
uh, in his spare time, and he finds half a joint in the office parking lot, and then he launches this investigation. <laughs> and, and Jim, who you know throughout the entire show is sort of his foil, says that Dwight finding drugs is more dangerous than most people using drugs. Um, <laughs> Dwight's interviewing Creed, who's very clearly like a survivor of the '60s and, and a hippie mm-hmm. who knows exactly what he's talking about. Dwight shows him this green herb. He says, "Do you know what this is?" And Creed responds, that is Northern Lights Cannabis Indica. And Dwight goes, no, it's marijuana. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it because he's just so innocent. But there are so many names for marijuana. We already did the the sort of species and and genus. But the the other ones are weed, pot, grass. These are all botanically themed. Reefer, I think, is really interesting. So that's the old word for rope. And that's kind of the hemp connection. And then, of course, you know, Mary Jane, skunk, ganja, uh, I could go on. Uh, I just think it's such an interesting um, drug in the sense that we have all these different terms for it. And as we'll get into in a minute, it's actually the variety that makes it kind of challenging to study Mm -hmm. scientifically and medically. So even if you get really, uh, really specific, the plant itself contains over 500 chemicals. Uh, But the one we often think about or talk about is the one that has the most cytoactive potential, and that's THC, tetrahydrocannabinol. And um, actually, remember, this is embarrassing, but I remember in (laughs) high school chemistry, everyone Uh was like totally bored to tears by the periodic table. But the entire class perked up when we started talking about THC, and I was I was such a straight laced nerd. I was like, oh yes, this molecule it's fascinating <laughs> as its metabolite eleven nor nine carboxy THC. But don't worry, guys, the hydroxyl group is still present, and you know everyone else is like, okay, nerd, you know whatever. And uh, it was a really interesting time. And honestly, I have learned more about this drug now as an oncologist than I did in my very sheltered youth. Oncology has exposed me to cannabinoids. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's it's because, and we'll talk about why, it really has entered many oncologists' common practice to help our patients. And I know where you come from, from the angle of addiction medicine, things look probably completely different. And I think that's going to be the fun back and forth of the episode. But um, I'll just start by kind of getting your initial thoughts, Joe. It's very interesting. I was looking at the legalization map for marijuana, and its I, I had no idea how many states were full-on legalization. I live in New York State, and it didn't occur to me that last year, New York State fully legalized marijuana. And as I look at the map, I see New Jersey, Connecticut, you know, the tri-state area states. Like There are mm-hmm. many states that are fully legalized. And honestly, I think that as states start to see that, wow, there's a lot of additional tax revenue here. Yes. And the end of the world is not happening because people are smoking marijuana. I think you're going to see 50 state at some point because, you know, again, like how can you be Utah and be, you know, not have it fully legalized when Nevada is right next door and they're getting all the tax revenue. So I think, you know, it's, it's fascinating to think about it. You know, even though marijuana is uh, considered a drug of abuse, that's a term that people use, we actually don't see it that often in at Suntra. Um, hmm. And uh, it's often not a, a, a primary problem. It's sort of further down on the differential of drugs that we deal with. But uh, it is an interesting substance. A lot of people use it. And, uh, you know, again, as it becomes legalized and more people are exposed to it, it'll be interesting to see, you know, how cannabis addiction evolves. Let me start by asking your take on sort of the whole natural versus synthetic thing. Again, I think a Mm -hmm. lot of people gravitate away from commercial medicine because they, quote, don't trust big pharma. What do you think about sort of the, the natural origins of this as an appeal? 
so much of convincing people to do things is about positioning, right? And and how yeah. you know people how people think about it. There's a guy named George Lakoff who is a, a, a neuroscientist who talks a lot about this and that you have to make arguments considering how you know the the frames that people use in their own mind. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, THC is quote unquote natural, but there are many drugs that we use in medicine that really started off as natural substances that get concentrated, purified, enhanced, and then get used. You know, in a clinical setting. So, you know, penicillin, taxol, morphine, these are all natural origins. And then we have many, many drugs that are based on these natural substances. Yeah. And I'm very interested in, you know, which ones give people the munchies, right? Which ones help with pain tolerance? And how can we start to tweak those things? Maybe naturally, by the way, you know, we grow the plants and maybe you can start doing some interesting thing with plant breeding. Although maybe you can also start, you know, taking the the plant and converting it into a pill or doing something like that. Yep. But I think that there's, it's very clear from at least anecdotal evidence. And I think there's a lot of research evidence that shows that cannabis can really make a difference for people uh, who are dealing with medical issues. And it'd be interesting to study this more scientifically to better understand of all these 500 chemicals, which ones can really help people. It's so interesting. There's a drug I use in my practice actually to protect people's kidneys. Mm-hmm. It used to involve 23 amino acids, and we recently distilled it down, and we realized that actually only two are helping. Mm. And okay. it's kind of the same process, right? I think you and I are, are believers in the scientific process. We want people to actually get what they're, they're, they're paying for, to actually get what they think they're putting in their bodies. But we want to know as precisely as possible, you know, which chemical is leading to which mechanism of action is leading to which result. So I completely agree with you on that. And, you know, I will often tell my patients, jail that every treatment has to be two things. It has Mm -hmm. to be effective and it has to be tolerable. And sort of the interesting story in oncology is that we've known about efficacy before we've known about tolerability. You know, again, I've been down this road with you before, but, you know, chemo is, is pretty infamously not easy to take. And so for all the breakthroughs that have happened in oncology in the last, say, 50 years, mm-hmm. when our national organization, which is called the American Society of Clinical Oncology, when they actually ranked what what were really the most important steps forward, what was the, the really high-level progress, in the top five were anti-nausea drugs. Sure. And I just think that's that's such a powerful testament to the fact that you've got to have both. You've got to marry the effective drug with the tolerable drug. And Mark, for our audience, just to help them understand like why nausea, anti-nausea is important with cancer is because so many cancer drugs cause nausea. And really what is a, a, a treatment limiting factor in a lot of cancers is how much nausea the patients can take. We have some amazing miracle drugs now, but the more we can add, the more aggressive you can be with the chemo, the further you can treat, the better you can treat people and the better they can do. And I have to tell you, I actually became a believer during my training, as I've also mentioned before, my fellowship mm-hmm. was at the Mayo Clinic in Minnesota. Mm-hmm. And so a lot of my patients would actually travel to Minnesota from other states. And I remember this one guy, he, he, he was there, he was staying with us for treatment, and he was just having the worst time. Like you said, he was just throwing up with every chemo we gave him. And he actually kind of, you know, cons- almost conspiratorially whispered to me in the exam room where, you know, you and I have patient doctor confidentiality. Everything is sort of a, uh, a closed secret in there. He said, Doc, actually have some marijuana in my suitcase. Can I use it? <laughs> you know, at the time, I don't want to sound like I was a narc, but, you know, I was a young fellow. I was like, oh, gosh, is, is this okay? Security. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's exactly right. I was, like, I was like Dwight in that office episode, you know. First of all, for him to confide in me, that meant so much. But then secondly, and, and really impactfully, JL, I watched 
it helped him. Mm-hmm. And I was like, this is amazing. Like I'm at the Mayo Clinic. I have almost every drug you can think of at my disposal to prescribe. And yet what's actually helping this man is what he brought with him. And it was actually marijuana that he was smoking. We'll get into sort of different uh, vehicles. And- Wait, now this guy was smoking marijuana in the Mayo Clinic? <laughs> well, Like he, think- he was lighting up Bob Marley style in the clinic? I think what he did, okay, I think uh-huh. what he did, the Mayo Clinic is a very straight-laced place. Everywhere's in, everyone's wearing suits. It's, it's a pretty buttoned-up institution. I think what he was doing was using it in the hotel across the street. Oh, and then he would walk. Okay. And get his chemo. I, I don't want the Mayo folks listening to this to think that they had you know someone blazing in the bathroom or something. But that's, I think, how he did it. And so he would come in kind of already uh, having used, shall we say. Mm-hmm. And in that manner, he was able to tolerate his treatment a lot better. And I think he used after chemo as well. I think that's how it went down. So there is the anti-nausea element of this. But I think for some people who smoke marijuana, there's also an anti-anxiety component too, right? I mean, are people using it for that as well? Yes. It's so astute you would say that. Actually, some of our anti-nausea drugs are anti-anxiety drugs, and we've sort of purposed them so we get both. And I think what you're getting at there, JL, is just this really interesting sort of uh, neurochemical link between anxiety and nausea. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you, I have seen apprehension in my patients manifest almost every way you can think of. I actually mm. wrote a piece uh, early in COVID where a patient almost had the sepsis protocol activated on them because their vital signs were so concerning. And it was basically a form of extreme anxiety. They were right wow. on the cusp of a panic attack. And so wow. what we've done in oncology, yeah, we've, we've taken uh, anti-anxiety drugs like the benzodiazepines, so mm-hmm. Ativan, for instance, and we've yep. actually used it. And we think it's actually a two-for-one special. We think it reduces anxiety and, you know, in, in an almost inextricable connection, reduces nausea as well. Interesting. Wow, I never thought about using Ativan or benzos for nausea. You know, you always think about it more for the, uh, you know, the anxiety or, you know, like when I was training, you know, you use it for seizures and things like that. But that's that's very interesting. I am honestly such a noob when it comes to this stuff. You know, I, I've seen my patients use uh, gummies, uh, tinctures, some smoke, some vape. I actually never thought as an oncologist that I'd be happy about smoking <laughs> or vaping. <laughs> I think that might have been why you were so incredulous that my you know patient was lighting up in the Mayo Clinic. But it's true. It really does help some folks. And frankly, as an oncologist, I'm a believer that if it helps them, you know, I, I really don't have a huge objection to that. If you train at a major academic medical center, and for people who may not know, Mayo Clinic is like best of the best, you know, you know, where I trained at Columbia, best of the best, you know, there's this tendency to only focus on prescribing what's been published, what's been proven in, you know, a pivotal clinical trial that gets published in the New England Journal or some other high quality journal. And there's really, at least in my experience, Mark, you know, a huge, um, ethos of not doing these like experimental things or anecdotally supported things. But if you see enough patients, like you've had your first first patient who benefits, then another guy benefits, then 10 more patients are benefiting. And they're like talking about this stuff on chat boards. At some point as a physician, you have to start to say, well, maybe this is something I should think about because this is really seemingly helping people. That's exactly right. And, and so again, you mentioned our, our literature. So, you know, sort of our body of evidence that we are, you know, constantly referring back to is this constantly growing sort of series of articles. And to get published in a journal, you typically have to sort of show data, you have to show numbers, and you can't just rely on anecdote. But I think what you're getting at is during 
our, our real world practice, our patients actually are informing us. And that's a very different way of learning. It's actually a very pure and wonderful way your patients teach you. But you're right. It does not generate the same sort of written knowledge that we would normally refer to and, and trust. And, and also, I think I have to say at this point, it does not. Cannabinoids do not help all of my patients with nausea. And in fact, and this is well established you know, within and without uh, oncology, it can do the exact opposite. So my wife as a pediatrician has actually encountered in teens, often kind of experimenting with marijuana for the first time, a, a phenomenon called cyclic vomiting syndrome. Oh. And this is pretty much exactly what it sounds like. <laughs> that it's, sounds terrible. Uh, yeah, yeah, exactly. So apparently the kids might refer to it as greening out. I sound mm-hmm. so old in this episode, but regardless. So what, what happens is you, you, the marijuana actually makes you sick. And, and, and you go in and you actually look like someone that's been given a, you know, a toxin, maybe even like a chemotherapy, but mm-hmm. it's not any of that stuff. It's actually the marijuana. So some people have this really adverse reaction. And, and then also you talked about the you know, anti-anxiety uh, properties. It's really fascinating. As I was researching, you know, I was talking today, it turns out the American Psychiatric Association is actually one of the medical bodies that opposes Mm. the legalization of medical cannabis. And, and I guess that surprised me a little bit. I wasn't you know, expecting them to be sort of so open-minded that they would accept everything without evidence. But you know, clearly the message there is they are not saying this is ready for prime time across the board as an anti-anxiety medicine or something that will necessarily help you with your mental health. Yeah. And, and as I think about the APA, you know, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I think about the APA, it's probably similar to every other uh, you know, medical subspecialty and specialty board, you know, I, I think the issue for them is, you know, everything has to be proven in a hundred clinical trials. You know how they think about evidence. And, uh, and obviously, you know, when you're talking about psychiatry, you're talking about addiction as well. And I continue to think that there is this view of medical, of marijuana as being a gateway drug. And I think maybe part of the concern there is this historical concern. If people start using marijuana, then they are more likely to start using other drugs. So I, I think there are a couple of things that probably explain that. But, you know, in psychiatry now, we're talking about psychedelics for depression, you know, and PTSD, Um, you know, and I think that there is a whole class of substances that are being revisited. And I think as they get studied more, you'll start to see more support from professional organizations, particularly, I think, if doctors can prescribe them and prescribe them without fear of getting sued or, you know, having some negative outcome as a result. This is really fascinating to me. So you kind of mentioned, is marijuana a gateway drug? There's this pill called Marinol, Mm -hmm. which I actually think has been sort of the key to legitimizing the use of cannabinoids in American medicine. So it was actually first approved back in 1985. Wow. The generic name is Dranabol, and it's the synthetic of Delta 9 THC. So it's this really, like you were saying earlier, kind of pure distilled down form of the part of the cannabis plant that is the most likely Mm -hmm. to activate your appetite in your brain. So it was approved for treatment of nausea in cancer patients back in the 80s. But then, this is fascinating, it was approved for weight loss in AIDS in 1992. Right. And, you know, I think in our lifetime, uh, I know we have a long way to go to secure equity for everybody, but I think we've seen sort of the, the treatment of patients with HIV and AIDS change so much. I mean, the 1990s in particular, I think, were, were thankfully, finally, these people were getting some progress and getting some you know, true acceptance in our medical community and treatment thereof. So this this wasting syndrome that came along with AIDS, sometimes called cachexia, one remedy for that was this version 
uh, of this, this Sildam cannabinoid called Marinol. And I have actually found uh, Marinol to be the more acceptable and perhaps just as importantly, more accessible solution mm-hmm. for my patients with these symptoms for a very, very long time, even before cannabis, medical cannabis per se, became available. I think a lot of people worry about the association with the illegal marijuana. But I think with the Marinol, you know, it's it's prescribed by a doctor. It's probably, if I had to guess, you know, people are getting the munchies. This is probably the thing that gives you the munchies. But, you know, they're probably not, not getting the euphoria. They're probably not getting a lot of the other things that people associate negatively with marijuana usage, right? And I think people can say, wow, this is a naturally derived substance. It's gonna, it, it's been proven to make people better. Um, you know, for our listeners, I, I I always say that the AIDS epidemic did so much for the patient community, right? From an advocacy standpoint, from a drug development standpoint, like the AIDS epidemic changed so many things. And I always like to point out that Anthony Fauci was in the lead at that time Mm -hmm. and was doing great things to get medications to the AIDS community. So, or uh, to the AIDS HIV community. So uh, I think this is a a great example of how you can have this natural substance that gets purified, that gets used in a therapeutic way. And, uh, you know, hopefully can help a lot of people. Again, what struck me, JL, when I was kind of learning the history of this is, okay, so Marinol has been used in cancer patients since 1985, and my specialty, probably as much as any other, thinks a lot about nausea and vomiting in addition to these weight issues. So then why has it taken so long for marijuana itself, not its synthetic derivative, but the actual plant, why has it taken so long for that to become normalized in oncology? And I actually think you touched on one of the reasons earlier was that it contains so many chemicals. Mm-hmm. Um, so a lot of the products that are marketed today talk about CBD to THC ratio. So one of the other right. things you have to think about in, in the in the plant as a whole is, is CBD. But like we mentioned, there's literally hundreds of other substances in there that have to be accounted for. And that makes you know distilling them down and doing actual clinical trials, as you already mentioned, very, very difficult. The other thing I really wanted your input on was your thoughts on drug scheduling. And then maybe we can kind of talk about A, what that even is, and B, how that could be a hindrance to clinical research. There are many substances that Mark and I prescribe that are referred to as controlled substances. So they require a a special license. You have to get a special license from the Drug Enforcement Agency, the DEA. They are prescribed in a special way. So when you're prescribing them in your electronic medical record, there's like an extra set of boxes that you have to click. Sometimes you have like a a token that you have to enter uh, to reduce the likelihood that these controlled substances will be diverted, misused, etc. And the, the DEA has five classes. They're called schedules. I don't know exactly why the why they're called schedules, but it's schedules one through five. Mm-hmm. And drugs are categorized really in two main categories. One, their potential for abuse from high to low, and then their accepted medical use, which is more of a binary yes or no. So, you know, things like, uh, let's say, a medication like oxycodone would typically be considered a schedule two medication. So high high potential for abuse, but uh, accepted medical use. So schedule two Mm -hmm. is high potential for abuse and yes, accepted medical use. THC and cannabis is actually listed as a schedule one substance. Mm -hmm. So schedule one means high potential for abuse and no accepted medical use. So it's sort of lumped in there with heroin, GHB, LSD, ecstasy, peyote, a whole bunch of other substances. So I think first 
is the scheduling issue, right? If it's yep. scheduled one, you can't prescribe it. It's not legal. Right. All the things that I mentioned, if you have them in your possession, you will be arrested uh, and you will uh, you know, have some legal problems as a result. So I think part of it is the scheduling. I think part of why the scheduling hasn't changed is one misperception. I, I, I don't, in my experience as a physician, I wouldn't say that marijuana has high potential for abuse. You know, I think lots of people use marijuana and and are able to have normal lives as a result of that. I think that in terms of accepted medical use, as we've been talking for the last 30 minutes or so, it's very clear that there are medical uses for this. So Mm -hmm. I'm a big believer that at some point you're going to see the cannabinoids, you know, marijuana, THC in general have to be rescheduled because it's just, I think there's too much pressure nowadays, especially with legalization for the substance to be schedule one. Yeah, I guess I'll say this. First of all, you mentioned you know how we prescribe controlled substances. I actually have an electronic fingerprint. I literally have to put my finger wow. on the pad in my office, and it goes mm-hmm. to some sort of central clearinghouse that says, okay, that's Mark Lewis. So that that's pretty interesting. And number two, I agree with you. I mean, I will say you know, on the record on this podcast, there are things I prescribe in Schedule 2 that I think are easily as, if not more, dangerous and you know prone to misuse than than marijuana and its derivatives. So I, I completely agree with the rescheduling. It's also made doing any sort of large scale clinical research virtually impossible, right? And then the other part I'll say is, you know, when I give medicines, it does matter whether I'm giving something, say, you know, intravenously or orally. And this is where the delivery vehicles, the actual sort of way you get these drugs into the body are all over the map. I already mentioned, you know, it can be smoked, vaped, eaten. It turns out it can actually be used as a suppository. And then what I really found <laughs> fascinating is the ancient Egyptians used uh-huh. cannabis suppositories to treat hemorrhoids. Uh-huh. So um, yeah, for a long time, people have been thinking about different routes of administration, but that makes it very, very hard to study. And I'll also say, in maybe it's most sort of conventional form, when it's smoked, many of my patients quite understandably find the notion of smoking anything to be completely off-putting, right? For sure. And, and then we've already touched several times, but I think we should drill down a little bit more. And I'll tell you my own experience here in Utah. There's the legal aspect. So I think this is a current number as of 2022 jail. I think 37 U.S. states have legalized the use of cannabis for medical purposes. But to the best of my understanding, it's not federally legal. So this gets back to sort of you know states' rights versus the federal government. So that still makes a lot of people profoundly nervous. And then I'll tell you what's happened here in Utah. You know, Utah is a very uh, interesting state. It tends to lean quite conservative politically. But when I got here in 2016, there was actually this sort of grassroots patient-organized initiative called Proposition 2. Mm-hmm. And after some revisions and some compromising with legislators, it became the Medical Cannabis Act actually passed by the Utah legislature. Now, there are a lot of restrictions. So one of which, as you mentioned earlier, is there is an incentive for the state to sort of make sure that the financial benefits of this are kept you know, within our borders. So the marijuana has to be grown, processed, and sold in Utah. Mm, okay. You do need a medical card to, to get it. And there's only, and I, this number may seem very small to you in New York, there's only 14 dispensaries throughout the state. But but what's happening before this, this was kind of an open secret in my clinic, is that patients would travel out of state. So Colorado to the east was kind of way ahead, I think, even nationally in terms of how they set up their dispensaries. But, you know, the Rocky Mountains separate 
Utah and Colorado. So there was kind of a, a big mountainous barrier between those two states. So what would happen more often was my patients would drive the other direction. They would tend to drive sort of west-southwest and they would end up in, in Nevada, sometimes not far from Vegas. So there's this town just across the border called Mesquite. <laughs> and there's a dispensary in Mesquite. And this is, this is one of the uh, funniest moments of my career is that my patients were kind of going there again and again and again. And I think, you know, the guys behind the counter sort of became curious, like, why are all these people coming here from Salt Lake? And they started kind of drilling down and asking. They said, oh, you know, we came here because we have this oncologist called Dr. Lewis and he's giving us chemo that makes us nauseous and this works. So for a time there, unfortunately, I think this is now gone. There was something called the Lewis discount. Where <laughs> if you just mentioned that you were in my practice, they gave you like 10% off or something. And I just thought that was so wonderful. It's not a accolade. I thought I was ever going to garner in my career. But it really what I'm trying to illustrate here is the patients are so smart. They do tend to share amongst themselves remedies that are working. And like you mentioned earlier, JL, this is a whole separate conversation than what we might have at our medical conferences or even sort of in a more dry fashion, you know, exchanging, you know, communication in our medical literature. And I think we just have to acknowledge that the patients have things that they can teach us and their networks are very, very powerful. Yeah, absolutely. So with that, why don't we throw it a break? And then when we come back, I think we need to kind of look at the other side of the coin. We've certainly talked about some of the upsides here, but especially from your perspective, and I really want to hear you out, I want to hear about some of the downsides too. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. So, JL, we're back. Sorry, in the break, I was just wrapping this for Doritos for some reason. So I, I polished <laughs> off the whole bag. That was weird. Doritos is my cheat snack for sure. Like when it's a, I, I will always buy a huge bag of Doritos for like the Super Bowl and I'll, I'll allegedly buy it for the whole family, but I'll, I'll eat a whole bag of Doritos by myself. Yeah. If they're not sort of sponsoring this episode, they're really missing out on, I think, some what we might call brand synergy, but regardless. So, you know, we've extolled, you know, some of the virtues. We've been a little bit lighthearted uh, about, you know, marijuana and how it intersects largely with my practice, but now I really want to be fair and balanced. I want to kind of look at the other side of the coin, and I know who I'm talking to. I, I know your expertise, JL, and your experience. So I want to be completely honest. We talked about this in our um, episode about drug commercials too. There is not a single substance that we use medically that is entirely benign. Mm -hmm. Even some of the over-the-counter things that can be bought by any adult can be quite dangerous. We even mentioned Tylenol as you know one of the number – uh, are one of the leading causes of, of liver failure in this country if it's used just a tiny bit improperly. So I think we really owe it to ourselves and our listeners to apply the same critical lens here and talk about, well, what are the potential downsides with marijuana? So, JL, again, I'm just curious about your perspective as someone who treats a lot of patients with addiction. Okay. So I'll ask you a question. Um, yeah. And uh, if you had to guess, you know, uh, I like to answer the phone when people call because it's always great to talk to individuals who are dealing with a problem or a family. You really get to learn a lot by talking to them. If I had to ask you sort of what do you think the top three substances that people call concerned about, what do you think those top three substances are? Hmm. Okay. 
Well, as an oncologist, I keep hearing that we're in the opioid crisis, which is a problem because I prescribe a lot of opioids. I would guess that prescription painkillers are on there. I know alcoholism and alcohol abuse disorder is quite prevalent, so I would guess alcohol. And then, gosh, I'm going to sound so naive, uh, cocaine? Uh, Good. All good guesses. And I I think an important thing I'd have to say is that this is very market dependent, right? Because it it is very clear, except for alcohol, that the other illicit substances are very, you know, very much dependent on what market that you live in. Mm. You know, we are focused on clients in a city like New York. You know, we have clients all across the country, but they tend to be more city people, tend to be more educated, uh, probably higher, higher household income. But, you know, our number one is alcohol. Hmm. Uh, number two, which is something I've actually been very surprised by, is benzos. Benzos oh, are a real wow. problem. Um, I'd say maybe opiates, number three. Meth, number four. And wow. then you start to get down to into the honorable mentions, you know, like for every 10 alcohol calls we get, maybe you get one cocaine call, you know. Huh. I thought that, you know, cocaine is a lot less common than you would think it is. Um, Adderall, you know, the stimulants are something that we get a call about. And we pretty rarely get calls about marijuana. And it's huh. it's interesting, you know, you, you, you'd expect that certainly, you know, people have a problem with, with marijuana. I mean, the, the definition of addiction is compulsive use of a substance despite adverse consequences. That's sort of the simplest definition. Yeah. And you tend to think that, you know, marijuana, like any other drug, has problems with addiction. And we do see it, but it's rare, actually, that we get individuals calling on their own behalf. It's often like a parent who's calling to complain about a teen's marijuana use. Uh, Another interesting thing thing that we often see, too, is marijuana use in a co-occurring psychiatric condition. We Mm. see a lot of people, I think, self-medicating with anxiety and depression. And by the way, the list I gave you, obviously, nobody, it's very common that we'll get people calling about, you know, alcohol, benzos, and opiates. Yeah, more Uh, than one, exactly, yeah. Correct, but if I had to sort of list, you know, come up with a histogram and, you know, list what the most common ones, marijuana is actually sort of toward the bottom of the list. And I think Mm. that's surprising to some extent. Yeah, clearly I need to update my understanding of New York from like the 1980s and movies like <laughs> Wall Street. I guess that's where my cocaine answer came from. So I New mean, Jack City, right? Yeah. yeah, New Jack City. There you go. So I guess this, in your field, uh, one of the questions you must sort of probe with patients is, you know, why do they start using in the first place, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is it is it fair to say that uh, the patients who you do encounter, it sounds like less often, who do have issues with marijuana, do they start because they're anxious or what have you been able to discern as the main reason they would start using? Yeah, I I mean, I think a lot of people start using socially because it's, you know, marijuana is a very social drug. Probably of all the drugs, maybe except for alcohol, it's one of the most social drugs that people use, especially when they're young. Um, And I think, you know, people start using casually and then find that it's just part of their lifestyle, you know? Hmm. And I think over time, going back to what we were saying about the anti-anxiety effects, um, anti uh, the mood effects of marijuana, I think some people end up using marijuana as a way to to self-treat mood disorders or anxiety disorders. And you know, it, it, it's interesting because for people who overuse marijuana or who want to stop using marijuana because they're addicted, we unfortunately don't have the same tools that we have, let's say, for alcohol and for uh, opiates. You know, for mm-hmm. alcohol and opiates, we can give people uh, we can give 
give them naltrexone, we can give them buprenorphine. But for marijuana, there really isn't the same kind of um, you know medication-assisted treatment that we can offer them. So that's an interesting aspect of uh, of marijuana use uh, when it becomes an addiction. That's really fascinating. And is there like a similar distinction? And maybe I'm completely off base here, so please correct me if I'm wrong. Like, does it matter if someone's using it? by themselves as opposed to socially? Is that ever a way that you sort of distinguish, okay, now this is getting really pathologic? Good question. So if you look at, you know, the DSM criteria, you know, one of the criteria as you're thinking about uh, addiction is are people using the substance to the exclusion of other things, right? You know, are you are you neglecting your job responsibilities? Are you Mm -hmm. neglecting your your interpersonal responsibilities or interpersonal relationships? And I would often say that, uh, that that's a very diagnostic symptom when people say that they are using on their own like I you know I was talking to a guy the other day this is more an alcohol thing but he talked about drinking alone I think mm-hmm. that tends to be pretty strong indicator that addiction may be an issue you know that the diagnosis may be a alcohol use disorder or a marijuana use disorder interesting and then how does it work there in New York just in terms of you know if a, if a patient maybe even for the most legitimate reason wanted to get marijuana how would they go about it so, you know, you mentioned like legal versus illegal. There, there's actually a couple of levels, right? There's fully legalized. There's mm-hmm. the medical legalization. Yes, yes. There is like decriminalization then, you know, and then all the way down to fully illegal. So there are a couple of different, you know, levels here. Mm-hmm. So in New York, it is fully legal. It is, we have medicinal and we have fully decriminalized. So it's huh. interesting. I, I, I'll tell you, man, here in New York, in the last year, I've been shocked to be walking down the street. You know, I work in Times Square and there's a guy sitting on a, uh, a, a like a uh, scaffolding and he's mm-hmm. got a joint and he's just smoking, lighting up and the cops are there and they're not saying anything to me and to him. And for somebody who's lived in New York for 30 years, that's like totally foreign because, yeah. you know, the cops traditionally use marijuana possession as an opportunity to escalate a, a legal encounter, if you will, right? You, they could bust you for, for marijuana and then find the knife that you had in your pocket or something like that. So I, it, it's very interesting now because it's, it, it's totally legal. Mm-hmm. We have ads non-stop marks. And it, it really, I'm, I'm not even joking when I say this, it feels like every other ad is a marijuana card ad that is is being placed. So, you know, marijuana has all of a sudden become very popular in New York. And I wonder as marijuana becomes more legal and more available, whether we'll start to see more people who have marijuana use disorder. And and oh. the analogy that I would make is, you know, 20 years ago, it was really hard to get access to benzos. Now benzos are much more freely prescribed. Mm-hmm. And I think that that's part of the reason why I see, you know, the number two reason that people come to us is because of benzodiazepine use disorder. So we'll see, you know, as, as marijuana gets used more often, maybe you start to see more people who have an issue with it. Interesting. Well, I think there's, there's two things there, right? I mean, if you're seeing that amount of ad saturation, it says, A, this is a very lucrative industry, and B, you're going to see it a lot more uh, often. There's going to be much more prevalence, uh, like you say, if this becomes uh, almost normalized. Okay, Mm -hmm. so let me ask you a a potentially charged question. Um, Is it ever a part of, say, acceptable addiction recovery that you would try substituting marijuana for another one of the substances that you listed? 
So as a physician, never suggest uh, substitution. But in the patient community, it's very controversial. And, you know, there are people, I mean, I can tell you right now that I have at least two or three patients who were opiate addicts before. They're totally fine. They're not using opiates anymore, but they do smoke marijuana occasionally. Um, You know, there are people who are in AA who smoke marijuana. Mm -hmm. Um, So, you know, it it is very controversial. I can say anecdotally that the the guys that I have who are using marijuana, uh, I always ask them, like, does this change how you think about your opiate use? Does it give you cravings for opiates? And they're like, you know, doesn't really affect that at all. So, you know, uh, again, I, very controversial. I think uh, something that is an emerging concept because, again, of legalization. But, uh, you know, we'll see. I, I, I think for a lot of people, they find, you know, total abstinence usually works best for them. But, you know, there's a whole harm reduction world out there of people who, you know, think that uh, maybe moderation might work better than total abstinence. Yeah, I think I've heard the term California sober. Is that right? California sober. Yes, that's a, <laughs> <laughs> that, that is a ter- term used tongue in cheek, I think. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, because honestly, when I've heard, you know, you know, marijuana and, and similar drugs, when I've heard them described as a healthier alternative to alcohol, that seems a bit like damning with faint praise, which brings me to another question for you. What mm-hmm. about drinking and using marijuana? And honestly, <laughs> what made me think about this was gin and juice, right? Should oh, I be boy. rolling down the street? Like that, not not drinking and driving, but go ahead. <laughs> Amazing album, man. You know yeah. that's it's hard to believe. Nineteen ninety four. It's like a golden era. And I remember hearing that song for the first time. I think we were were buying CDs at that time, you yeah. know, and listening to that and saying like, "Wow, this is really interesting, and this is really different." And who is this guy rapping these verses? Who is this Snoop yes. Dogg guy? We got to learn more about this Snoop Dogg guy. As a general rule in the addiction world, you know, y- you run into trouble when you start mixing things. You know, we yeah. talked about this in our sleep episode once you start mixing things that are that have an impact on your central nervous system you you get into a dangerous area um i did a little research there's actually no documented fatal overdoses associated with thc um but you know it's often in places where it's illegal. It uh, can be adulterated, and you know who knows what's in an adulterated marijuana product. Um, yeah. You know, really, one of the big things we worry about these days is fentanyl, and oh, fentanyl yeah. and literally being in everything. So, you know, if you've got some weed that's got some fentanyl in it, and you're drinking, that can be dangerous. And you know, look, I, I have to say that I'm a child of the '80s. You know, I grew up during the Reagan era, and uh, subject to a lot of the anti-drug messaging, which was popular during that time. Uh, you could argue maybe it was even propaganda. And I think, you know, people just have to be careful. Uh, you know, you have to be careful with these substances. So I would not recommend using anything, to, 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 to be honest. And I would be careful about, you know, mixing, you know, marijuana and, and alcohol and, and anything else you might want to take. Yeah, you know, you and I grew up at roughly the same time, but it was really eye-opening to me as a parent. My son went through the D.A.R.E. program, which I wow. did okay. you know, way back in the 80s. And I got my, my T-shirt uh, as sort of a graduation from that. And it's interesting. Mm-hmm. I agree with you. I think that the culture is sort of swinging away from that, you know, very hard known everything to sort of very carefully, you know, experimenting. And I say that, you know, um, phrase with, with some caveats too. I really like your message of being careful about mixing and matching. And when you and I were talking earlier in the show about, you know, why a plant that contains 500 chemicals makes us a little bit nervous is that, you know, especially the psychoactive chemicals, when you start combining them, you just don't know, 
you know, what sort of additive or even multiplicative effect you're going to get. And like you said, same thing when we talked about ambient alcohol. So, so thank you for that. Um, sure. So, you know, JL, to talk to someone like you is, is so eye-opening. So if I can wrap up our cannabis discussion, I think what I would say is from my side of the table as an oncologist, someone that really wants to do everything in his power to prevent his patients from being nauseous, to maintain or even sort of augment their weight, I actually do see the value. Where I am a little bit out on a limb, if I'm honest with you, is I was never formally trained in this. And I am mm-hmm. really learning as I go, and my teachers are the patients. So I'm in this weird sort of reverse model where, like, ever since I saw that guy at Mayo who told me he was smoking up in the hotel, like, I've been sort of trying to be a bit more open-minded and realize, you know what, it works for some people. Um, I think where I am more of a moderate, and I said this earlier, is I know it doesn't work for everybody, and I have very rarely seen a noxious reaction, meaning that it actually makes the person sicker. So I'm not ready to say here that it's a panacea uh, for everything. And I think your side, which you've just stated very, very eloquently, is that, hey, you know what? There are still downsides. It's not entirely benign. And I think as scientists, I think you'd agree with this statement, so much of this just requires further study, you know, and I think we need to study these compounds and learn more about how they work. And I think to make that happen, and you hit the nail dead on the head and you were, you know, totally insightful, is that the legal position that marijuana has makes it very difficult to study. So, you know, arguably one of the things that the best things that our listeners could do is, you know, call your congressman, you know, call your elected official and advocate for, you know, further legalization or at least efforts to study marijuana a little bit better so that we can better understand how it works and potentially adopt this medicine, which it appears to be for some people, uh, so that we can provide uh, better care. Yeah. You know, at our medical conferences, every time I go, I hear the phrase, more study is needed. And mm-hmm. I think that's just a position of intellectual humility. Like, yep. we are part of this beautiful chain of accumulating knowledge that stretches way back and will continue you know, after us. And I think sort of maintaining the continuity of that chain involves being committed to good and reproducible research. Almost anything that we prescribe has been so thoroughly vetted. And, and what it comes back down to, again, is reproducibility. You have to be reasonably certain that the drug is going to affect you know, different people in, in roughly the same way. And I think that's where a lot of this sort of uncertainty around marijuana has come from. Got it. So, JL, that was wonderful to talk to you about that. Thank you. Before we go... I'd like to do a mental health minute, and we're recording this in May, which is Mental Health Awareness Month. So I was looking around Mm -hmm. actually on Twitter, and this is not a mean tweet. This is quite the opposite. So this was practical tips uh, around supporting other people's mental health from someone called Mellow Doodles, which I thought was great. And you you probably know for somebody named with a Twitter handle of Mellow Doodles, you probably know their position on marijuana right off the bat. That's exactly right. I thought (laughs) this is really going to fit the vibe of today. You know, you can almost hear the Bob Marley. So I thought they had some great tips. And so I know we like to leave our listeners with something concrete. So again, this is if you're concerned about, say, a friend. They said, you know, start the conversation with authentically asking, how are you? It's so easy. It, it's almost a trope. You're talking to someone, say, hey, how's it going? And they give you some sort of cursory answer back, but really making sure that you're giving them time and space to answer how they're feeling and, you know, listen to them. Uh, Mellow Doodles suggests hugging. I think this might be a pre-COVID list, although hopefully we're getting back to the point where physical contact with our friends can be a bit more acceptable. They said, I thought this was really cool too. They said, avoid comparisons. And- 
I think what they're getting at there is just recognizing that everybody has their own experience. I'll tell you, with my patients' jail, it's incredibly common when they're diagnosed for people to come out of the woodwork and start telling them, usually unsolicited, sort of stories about either what they've been through or a family member. And it's just not always that applicable. And it also really is just not acknowledging that, you know, this person in front of you is going through their own thing. Right. They said, you know, recommend celebrating small steps. You talked about, you know, addiction recovery. I know that doesn't happen overnight. And, and you know, there's literally you know, programs that are measured in steps. So I think that the small victories matter. They did recommend, and again, this might be a, a pre or sort of late uh, COVID recommendation, go and visit in person uh, if possible. I think, again, to get past loneliness, we talked about the isolation earlier that can actually lead some people uh, maybe to use these substances alone. And then I, I like this one too. I've seen this also when families are grieving. It's hard actually if you just ask an abstract question like, what can I do? And mm-hmm. it's actually more helpful, I think, if you're specific and you say, hey, can I bring over dinner? Or even, I'm bringing over dinner, what would you like? So I think that kind of specificity helps. And then if you do know their network of loved ones and if there's some trust there and openness, you know, I think it's wrong to reach out and make sure they're supporting this person too. So I actually really like that list. Um, I thought Mellow Doodles, like you said, really liked mm-hmm. today's episode. And mm-hmm. so I thought that was one kind of good way of tying it all together. Yeah. And, you know, it's interesting that the the penultimate one, they give the practical support. Can yeah. I bring over dinner? I remember when my uh, when my parents were diagnosed with cancer, we had a, a neighbor, uh, folks who had lived, uh, you know, on the same block as, as us for 40 years. And uh, they did just that. They didn't say, can I bring over dinner? There's like these, I guess, services that you can order these a huge box of like 50 prepared meals. And yeah. they ordered that for us. And I was like, wow, that's the most useful thoughtful thing that anybody could do given where we were at that time. So yeah, the practical support I think is a really, really useful thing. Uh, So on that high note, no pun intended, that's our show for today. And thank you for listening. We'd love to hear from you. You can email us at isitserious at offscript, no T, offscript.com or call Offscript Health and leave a message. We might just use your question on the show. Our number is 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. You can also find us on social media. I'm active on LinkedIn, and my Twitter handle is at Jean-Luc Neptune. Mine is at Mark Lewis MD. And please remember that while we love talking about medicine and healthcare, this show doesn't provide medical advice. If you have any questions, make sure you ask your doctor. So take care, everybody, and please join us next time for Is It Serious? That's all for now. If you like this show, be sure to subscribe, leave a review, follow us on social, and tell all of your friends to listen. Do you have a medical question or concern? Ask us by leaving a message at 855-AUDIO-66. That's 855-283-4666. Or you can email us at isitserious at offscript.com. And we might just use your question in a future show. Is It Serious is a product of Offscript Health. We are a healthcare engagement company built for patients and caregivers by patients and caregivers. Our executive producers are Matthew Zachary and Andrew McDowell. Our senior producers are Joey Brenneman and Ariel Nachman. Our hosts are Dr. Jean-Luc Neptune and Dr. Mark Lewis. Our researcher is Emma Gomez and our sound mixer is Kyle Moore. For advertising and media inquiries, email media at offscript.com. For more information, visit offscript.com.